0: Did you know that over the past 15 years, the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of religious freedom 81% of the time? It might not seem that way, but when we bring our cases to court, we tend to win. Last month, the Supreme Court handed down a decision that was a big victory for religious freedom and children in need. This win is part of a series of pro-religion decisions this past year. So is momentum finally on our side? Or do these victories signal nothing except temporary wins in an ongoing battle? Welcome to Religious Freedom Matters. I'm your host, Andrea Pachati-Bayer, director of The Conscience Project. Joining me by phone is Joan Desmond, senior editor of the National Catholic Register. Always great to work with you, Joan.
1: Love to be with you, too.
0: A special thanks to Guadalupe Radio Network for allowing us to use their DC studio Joining us in studio is Lori Windham, senior attorney at the country's premier religious freedom law firm, Beckett Law. Lori was the lead lawyer in Fulton versus Philadelphia, and will walk us through the case and what it means for the future. Thanks for joining us, Lori.
2: Andrea, thank you so much for having me here. It's great to be here with you.
0: To get us started, Lori, give us an overview of what was going on in Philadelphia and why the courts got involved.
2: So this case actually started back in 2018, and the city of Philadelphia was really desperate for more foster families because they didn't have enough homes for the children in their child welfare system, and they put out a call for 300 more foster families to join the system. Within a week, they found out from a newspaper article in the Philly Inquirer that Catholic Social Services of Philadelphia, which had been serving families and kids for centuries, did not provide written home study certifications for same-sex couples if they wanted to become foster parents. None of them had actually approached Catholic Social Services asking for one of these certifications, but when the city found out about it in a newspaper article, they said no more children could be placed with Catholic Social Services, and that meant no more children could be placed with women like Sharon L. Fulton or Tony Sims-Bush or Cecilia Paul, who had fostered more than a hundred children over many years of faithful service to the city of Philadelphia.
0: Now, Laurie, the city had been partnering with the Archdiocese in these foster care placements for decades.
2: That's right. The Archdiocese was actually there doing this work a long time before the city was. Interestingly enough, we looked at the history and found out that um, the history of uh, Catholic foster care in Philadelphia started off in the late 18th century. There was an epidemic of yellow hmm. fever and they were going out and finding homes for children who had been orphaned or whose parents were unable to care for them because of the epidemic. And different groups or agencies within the church have been doing that, and and the one doing it now is Catholic Social Services of Philadelphia. They've been carrying on this work that started over 200 years ago, and since about 1960 or so,
0: they've been doing it in partnership with the city of Philadelphia. You know, I thought it was very interesting that even the city acknowledged the important contribution of the archdiocese agency, that this was not an agency that had been problematic or failed to serve kids or foster families well, but was really exemplary and a beacon for this foster care crisis that the city was facing.
2: That's exactly right. They called Catholic Social Services a point of light in their foster care system, and that was something that actually got quoted by the Supreme Court in its opinion.
0: Now, Joan and I were talking a little bit about this case and some of the other facts. Joan, do you want to ask some of the the questions that were concerning to you about what led Beckett and these plaintiffs to go to court?
1: Well, I think one of the most interesting things which really shocked me was the lack of disclosure in many media stories about how many other options were available for same-sex couples and why... As a result, Catholic agency should be allowed to abide by its own teachings and mission. Could you discuss that a little bit, Lori?
2: Absolutely. At the time when we went into court, there were 30 foster agencies in Philadelphia and 29 of them would provide home study certifications for same-sex couples. So this was definitely not a case of those couples being excluded from the system. In fact, there were three agencies who actually had a special seal of approval that they had received because of their excellence in serving LGBTQ families. And so there were plenty of options for same-sex couples in Philadelphia, and I think that's why none of them had decided to approach the Catholic Church looking for a home study.
0: You know, it's interesting. One other agency at the very beginning of this controversy did say that they too wouldn't certify same-sex couples. They actually had a couple, I think, go to an informational session, and one of their employees mentioned that couple would be better served elsewhere. What happened there and how is this a sign of what bullying power these government officials can exert in this context?
2: I I think bullying power is a great way to put it. Um, This was Bethany Christian Services and they'd had a policy about uh, not providing home studies for same-sex couples. Somebody went to one of their informational sessions and then received that information and uh, went to the newspaper about it, which is how the whole story got started. And after this happened, and after the city shut down foster care placements with Bethany, then Bethany changed their policy in Philadelphia. And it was at the time, as far as I know, it was just that agency in Philadelphia that had changed the policy. But Bethany, which is based in Michigan, actually came under pressure from the Attorney General of Michigan about a year later, and they ended up changing their policy
0: nationwide as a result of this. You know, I grew up in Michigan, and I'm disappointed with the mitten. And how it's been, <laughs> how it's been handling this issue. And I know that you guys have active litigation. I'm hoping we can touch upon that in the state of Michigan. What's interesting about Philadelphia and, and the church's response to this pressure was that the church came up with a solution that seems to me a very common sense solution to this problem—a way to continue to operate consistent with their understanding of traditional marriage between a man and a woman and serve kids in need. Tell us about that solution and what the city's response to it was.
2: Catholic Social Services policy is they're going to serve all kids regardless their race, their religion, their sex, their sexual orientation. They're going to help them find a home. They said they couldn't in good conscience provide a home study certification. Um, I know those of you who have been through foster care and adoptions are familiar with this, um, but it's a very intensive process. You're having social workers come into your home and interview you and your family and assess your relationships with your children. And at the end of that, they have to write a report and make a certification about your family relationships in your home. And Catholic Social Services said, we can't do that for unmarried couples. We can't do that for same-sex couples because we're certifying something that's contrary to our belief about marriage. But if somebody comes to us, then we will provide them with a referral. We will help them find another agency who can actually perform that certification for them. And so nobody is being excluded or kept out. Uh, They're able to serve consistent with their religious beliefs. Unfortunately, this was a non-starter with the city of Philadelphia.
0: And the, the city's response to that, they were fairly hostile. I know that the court didn't base its decision on that hostility, but it's pretty frightening what statements were made and the pushback that was being given to this agency.
2: It's true. The city council
0: passed a resolution
2: saying it was discrimination under the guise of religious freedom, you know, as if religious freedom isn't something that matters or that is an important value, but it was just an excuse to do something bad, which is, you know, a huge insult to these women who've been providing foster care in their homes and to to Catholic Social Services and the amazing team that they have there that's so dedicated to serving those in need the head of the city's Department of Human Services actually said that Catholic Social Services was not properly following Catholic teaching and the true hmm. teachings of Pope Francis and penalized them after that point. So there was real hostility toward the religious beliefs and practices.
0: Joan, do you have any more things that stuck out at you as to what was going on in Philadelphia and, and how that seems to be a pattern in lots of different places in the country?
1: Well. It has happened other places, and what's so shocking about it is we really have a foster care crisis. There's more than 400,000 children who are in the foster care system, and we all know how many of them are falling between the cracks. They're more likely to get pulled into sex trafficking stuff. They don't finish high school. So to find what you want is to find and recruit experienced, reliable, solid citizens, foster parents who can help these children navigate life in such a tough time and instead they're being excluded and to me that's one of the most shocking parts what you want is to expand that but effectively this very rigid definition of what is suitable now basically there was an attempt to exclude religious believers who embraced Teachings that go back 2,000 years and were previously acceptable until very recently. This is something really extreme in which you feel like there's an intolerance being imposed that's really harming the children. Of course, other places have had their Catholic foster care agencies shut down rather than violate their teachings, But this is the time for to fight, I think. And I was enormously encouraged that they went to court.
0: No, there's something scrappy about Catholics in Philadelphia. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court's decision, which was incredible. I had been listening to Lori's great advocacy in this case since the Court of Appeals and was so thrilled to be able to listen to your oral argument, Lori, in the Supreme Court. And now we've got the decision, and it's amazing. Many of our listeners aren't lawyers, but... Lori, can you make the court's decision user friendly for our listeners to be able to understand its significance, not just in Philadelphia, but for moving forward on these very difficult controversies?
2: I will. I will do my best. Uh, it's
0: always a risky thing to ask
2: a lawyer to make things <laughs> um, simple. <It's> so terrible. <laughs> you know, it's just such a such a relief and such a joy for my clients that it was a unanimous decision. Leading up to this case, you know, you saw it start off with the newspaper article in Philadelphia. The media and the public discussion about this was, this is a big controversy. These are difficult issues. This is hard. Sometimes there were, you know, some pretty nasty attacks leveled at my client's. And so for the Supreme Court to come together unanimously and say, Philadelphia went too far here, they can't do this, and the religious freedom of Cheryl and Tony and Catholic social services has to be protected, I think that sends a really powerful signal that, hey, there's a better way to handle these things, and you can't just go around excluding religious
0: people whose beliefs you don't like. Well, and this is a court that oftentimes is very divided especially on issues that tend to have a a partisan or an ideological flavor to it. And here, nine justices all agreed that the First Amendment and the free exercise right was trampled on by the city.
2: It's fantastic, and it's, you know, I think it's just such a strong statement to government officials and to the lower courts, um, because we lost in the lower courts. Our, Our first win in this case was at the Supreme Court unanimously, and I think that's a really strong signal that the Supreme Court says, no, there's a better way to do things, and it's not necessary to shut down these religious agencies. You know, getting into a little bit more of the weeds of the decision, what the court said is that At the very least, religion has to be treated fairly. If you're going to be going around and bending the rules for other people and you have a really discretionary system where sometimes the rules apply and sometimes they don't, well then, when you have a claim of religious freedom or a burden on religious exercise, you can't say, no, 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 now is the moment when we really enforce the rules against everyone. I'm serious now. Exactly. Uh, If you do that, you've got to show you've got a really good reason for it. And Philadelphia didn't have a really good reason. They didn't have what we call a compelling government interest. In fact, as the Supreme Court said, it looked like there would be more families available if Catholic Social Services is allowed to continue to serve. And so for that reason, the Supreme Court said that Philadelphia had violated the free exercise clause when it tried to exclude them from the foster care system.
0: You know, I want to just jump in there and and mention in addition to having two incredible foster mothers who joined in this lawsuit, three initially, one has since passed away. Uh, and may her soul rest in peace, there were a number of people that joined in a brief that I was able to file with the court and even in the lower courts who had been served by foster care agencies and adoption agencies run by Catholic programs, some in Philadelphia and some in other places, either as foster children, and now they're adults, or as foster parents. And they wanted to stand up, courageously they stood up, to defend the right for these agencies to continue to operate. It wasn't their purpose to exclude other people from participating. What they wanted to do was defend, and one of them called it beautifully, my agency. Defend my agency. Joan, you've written significantly on the decision itself and some of the aftermath. What were some of the things that you thought about the decision and about how people reacted to the decision?
1: I think there's such a disconnect often between the actual decision how it's been framed before the decision came down, and even how it's framed afterwards if it's perceived as problematic in some way. I noticed, for example, that the fact that we had a unanimous decision, initially with the decision that sided with the Catholic Agency, that was seen as very problematic because of this very argument that either you have complete support for non-discrimination in every case that's government's compelling interest, or you don't, there's nothing in between. And the idea that government has a compelling interest, which includes non-discrimination, but also requires nuance and flexibility in a particular situation like Philadelphia, where there were other options for same-sex couples, well, that's important too. And I think that nuance is so often missing, isn't it, Lori?
2: Uh, Joan, I think that is really well said. You know, the problem is, and I've been doing this a while, I've sued a lot of government officials. Good for you. (laughs) But, you know, if you tell the government, okay, if you say the word discrimination, then you've got a compelling interest and you win your case, guess what word they're always going to say? And so you can't just have a bright line rule that says anytime you point to a non-discrimination law or policy, then the government wins. And I know that's what a lot of people have been asking for, but the problem is, What happens then is you just, you lose all context. You lose um, the fact that there was discrimination against Sharon L. Fulton and Tony Sims Bush going Mm -hmm. on here, going the other direction. Uh, And you encourage officials to just expand the definition of discrimination to mean things that would have been unthinkable five or 10 years ago.
0: Well, and when you throw that kind of blanket rule, you close out of the public square really important agencies, like Philadelphia's Catholic Social Services. They're going in there and responding to needs, oftentimes in partnership with their local or state governments. But part of what is motivating people through their faith is this desire to serve the other. And I think it's important that we can, like you said, Joan, appreciate the nuance for the good of society.
1: I think as a journalist, what's happening is that people see the headlines, They get this negativity, let's say, in this decision or when I think a lot of media journalists who cover this from the court and they tend to have a particular frame politically, ideologically on these things. Then the headlines did change in some cases for just kind of a neutral headline from a kind of negative headline to a neutral headline. But nevertheless, I think what's so important is that people need to read more about this so that they really have an understanding, and when their friend or their child or, or whomever says, "Oh, well, I can't believe the justices had this unanimous decision. This was obviously wrong because of x reason," they can actually explain what's really going on with this nuance. I mean, it's just it's very frustrating. The other thing I thought was very cool was the idea that we've often thought, well, it's one thing to have a generally applicable rule for free speech, for example, religious freedom for individuals, but it's another thing when it's a contractor, a government contractor like this Mm -hmm. Catholic foster agency. And what we discovered is that they also have rights. And that's something that people need to hear. But a lot of people think, well, if the government's paying the bills, why should this agency have any rights?
2: That's that's something we've heard a lot, and that was a big part of the defense before the Supreme Court, which the court rejected kind of out of hand. It was mm-hmm. really short. It's like it was a paragraph, and, and they wrote thousands and thousands of words on it in the briefs. But, you know, I think that people say, oh, well, government contract, that's a different thing. But I think it's really important to understand the context here. This isn't like a defense contract to build a jet, mm-hmm. right? This is something that the Archdiocese has been doing for centuries. And this is something when you look at child welfare in the United States, um, it was the Catholic Church and it was other religious groups who really pioneered that and were out there doing that work. And what we've seen over the last you know, half century or more is we've seen a growth of government control and government involvement in child welfare. And this is something that's not unique to that space. You see it in things like healthcare as well, where the government comes in and increasingly starts taking over more and more of what used to be private and what used to be religious.
0: And now they say, okay, if you want to do this, you follow our rules and you do this our way. Well, I thought it was interesting, too. The only way the church can participate in foster care in Philadelphia is through a partnership with the city. So it's not like it can go off on its own and find foster care placements. It has to do so. And the the justices, which I thought was great, is they pointed out you can't weaponize licensing agreements to force conformity in opinions and especially at odds with with religious belief. So it's really this is a great win, Lori, and hats off to your clients, to the foster moms and to all these other foster families that are participating, opening their homes, responding with love and generosity, and many of them are inspired by their faith, but everyone should be owning this crisis. This is a crisis for all of us. How do we we create the space of love and stability that that our children all need?
2: Uh, That's beautifully said.
0: Lori, before we end our conversation, I just wanted to touch upon some of the other awesome things that Beckett was doing this year. In particular, you guys were active in cases involving government overreach, this time in response to the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, and restrictions on houses of worship. Can you just tell us a little bit about how the court first received those requests for relief and where we are today on uh, those kinds of restrictions? Absolutely. It's been a really interesting evolution. So this started
2: off actually about this time last year um, when we were, what, two or three months into lockdowns. And the first case goes up to the Supreme Court of a church that had been restricted and shut down in its worship. And the Supreme Court rejected it. And then another case went up that I actually thought was really compelling. It was out of Nevada, and the casinos had reopened. And they actually had a picture of the governor, like, (laughs) downtown on the strip. And those were allowed to reopen, but churches still had very strict limitations on their capacity. And the Supreme Court rejected that one, too, last summer, which was just a a real disappointment um, because it seemed like the court was not applying what we thought the rule ought to be, which is if you're going to make exceptions, for other reasons, then you need to treat religion fairly and with respect. And then that changed dramatically in November. We were involved in a case for Agudath Israel of America. It was paired for a case for the Diocese of Brooklyn. And what happened was Governor Cuomo had basically drawn circles around certain areas, which were Orthodox Jewish areas Hmm. in New York City, and said, these are areas that are at high risk, and so we're gonna have extra strong restrictions in that area. And so you could have 10 people in a cathedral that would seat a 1,000. You could have 10 people in a synagogue that would seat 400, whereas you could be in an office building nearby and have many more than that. And so this went up to the Supreme Court, And it was almost midnight the day before Thanksgiving. Excellent timing. (laughs) It was. And the Supreme Court, for the first time, struck down a COVID restriction and said, you know, look, if you're going to open up bike shops and acupuncture and, you know, electrochemical manufacturing, uh, you need to also respect religious exercise and respect the importance of this. And since that time, we've actually seen a series of decisions from the Supreme Court reinforcing that standard, you know, coming up to the, the Tandon case, which I believe was in March, so about a year into the pandemic, where the Supreme Court said to California, look, this ought to be obvious by now. If you're going to go around making exceptions or not regulating other kinds of assemblies, then you have to respect and protect houses of worship. You have to treat them as least as well as you're treating shopping malls. And the court said that very forcefully, which was great news. And you saw shortly after that happened, the states that still had really strict capacity limits on houses of worship very quickly started to lift those. And so it really made a difference in how churches were being treated. And I think it will make a big difference in First Amendment law going forward. Joan had mentioned
0: before that there's an argument that people make about, well, you know, houses of worship, when you gather for extended periods of time, there's greater risk of the transmission of the coronavirus, so of course there should be greater sensitivity. But there's a lot that's been done within churches, particularly within the Catholic Church, to make sure that people are safe when we gather for Mass and for other sacraments. And Joan, how have you seen the media embrace care that the houses of worship and church communities have done to make sure that people are safe?
1: Let me just say, I think several groups, including the Thomistic Institute, did a really fabulous job of really bearing down on the issues. You have hand-washing, social distancing, mask-wearing, and of course for Catholics, we want to receive Holy Communion on the hand versus the mouth. So there were a lot of issues there, and you also had a kind of a downstream effect on schools. So You had an indirect effect with the closing of worship also affected schools, but so there was a lot going on. I was just so impressed with how the Church pivoted, and I think even mainstream media was impressed. The Church showed a huge amount of grit, as did some other religious denominations. In particular, I think, speaking as someone who lives outside of California, let me just say, in the early days, for example, the Chronicle was clearly outraged to see if there were any religious worship taking place of any type. The irony is that the city attorney in San Francisco at one point was policing Catholic churches to make sure there weren't secret wedding ceremonies Mm. going on, and people were being told to, to leave if they had had some secret wedding service, however small. But that same city attorney later was suing the Board of Education for failing to open schools. Hmm. So that's how far (laughs) we have come in the course of the pandemic. And Archbishop Corleone had thought to him, some of this was optics. The optics were important too. When he was told he could only have 12 people in the cathedral, which of course, 2000 plus people Hmm. could have been there not even 12 people in the cathedral only 12 people in an outdoor service truly bizarre Absolutely My he had 12 different pastors holding 12 different masses in the cathedral courtyard with 12 people at each mass
0: so so scrappy so, can be found in San Francisco as well
1: I mean literally you can't make this stuff up but But honestly, to me, it was enormously important. And then, of course, hats off to Bishop DiMarzio, who, as you know, Laurie, filed suit to challenge that. And I was so impressed by, again, the grit and determination of pastors. I'm thinking in particular of Monsignor Cassato, an old Italian parish. And he had put $50,000 into the school for social distancing. He was so committed to getting these kids back to school, equally committed to having his parish community available for worship. And nobody fought harder legally, respectfully, logically. And I just want to, so many good examples. Then of course, California also had the Protestant churches, these autonomous churches went to court. So they paved the way for everybody else as well.
0: What's interesting, Joan, is we used to always think the right to worship was safe in America and the pandemic and government reaction definitely tested that. Laurie, what are some of the cases to watch? What do you think are going to be the issues that are gonna percolate up to the Supreme Court and in our lower courts of appeals in the next few years? And what can we all do to be better educated?
2: Well, first, we'll take all the prayer that we can get, and we would appreciate that. You know, I think it's really important to be paying attention to Joan and to EWTN and to news sources who are really going to dig into this case and not just give you kind of the surface-level talking points we hear around Washington, but are actually going to dig in and tell you what are the facts on the ground. I think that's so important. You know, a couple of things we're watching right now— we have a petition at the Supreme Court. We won't find out till the fall whether they're going to take it, um, but it's out of New York and once again involves Governor Cuomo requiring orders of nuns and churches to cover even surgical abortion as part of their health care plan. Mm. And, you know, you thought the contraceptive mandate was bad. They decided it wasn't nearly bad enough, and they needed to go even farther. Just a heartbreaking situation, and the New York state courts were just rubber stamping what the government had done there. And so we've asked the Supreme Court to review that and to protect religious freedom. We'll hear in the fall if they're going to do that. Another issue we're watching carefully, and this is kind of working its way up, has been the transgender mandate. You know, this has been around a long time. It was this kind of uh, last-minute regulation out of the Obama, administration, but doctors and hospitals can be liable if they would, say, provide hormones to a teenager who had a hormonal imbalance, but they would not, for reasons of conscience or just medical judgment, not provide cross-sex hormones to a teenager who's undergoing a gender transition. Uh, or if they would provide a hysterectomy to remove cancer, but not a hysterectomy to an 18 year old who is transitioning. And uh, this law has, you know, has some really scary penalties and consequences for those in the healthcare profession. It's been enjoined by a federal
0: court, but we're waiting to see what's going to happen with it going forward. It certainly seems that the fight for religious freedom continues. In our courts, religious freedom is winning, thanks to a lot of the great work done by Lori and her colleagues at Beckett Law. These victories are important and require courageous people to stand up against oppressive government action. And let's not forget that the victories realized in our courts can help influence the court of public opinion. Joining me for another insightful discussion of Religious Freedom Matters was Joan Desmond, of the National Catholic Register and our guest, Lori Windham, Senior attorney at Beckett Law. You can stay up to date with the advocacy of Beckett and learning more about their victories in court at BeckettLaw.org. I'm Andrea Pachati-Bayer, Director of the Conscience Project. Follow me on Twitter at Bayer Pachati, and make sure to listen to all of our episodes with amazing scholars and advocates on why religious freedom matters. You can find the episodes at the Conscience Project website, conscience-project.org, as well as the National Catholic Register website. Thank you very much.